Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing these songs tonight, that by grace we are part of your family. And we want to rejoice in that. And Father, I want to pray that you would take these words of mine, that they might bring glory to you, and that you might be honoured in all we do tonight. Amen. Meeting the family. If you remember, we're in this series of uh, sermons uh, on Christian basics a couple of weeks ago. Will brought us the uh, good news that we have the Word of God written in the Bible for us. Last week, I spoke about talking to God, what we call prayer, and tonight we're looking at meeting the family, which is not an easy topic in 20 minutes. Um, And I wondered how many of us have had the experience of going to meet the future in-laws for the first time, meeting that family into which we're going to join by marriage. Well, if you have, I'm I'm, I'm sure you would recognize the fact that it can be quite a nerve-wracking experience. In fact, it seemed to be such an issue today that there are now web pages that offer 10 good tips of what one should wear, what one should say, what one should do in trying to create a good impression and be accepted by the future mum and dad in law. Well, tonight's sermon, the title of which is Meeting a Family, but this time the family is not the new in-laws, it refers to the family of God. And of course it can be quite an undertaking for those who are not members of that family. What are they to expect? What are they to do? So our passage tonight refers to some of the characteristics of what that family should actually be like. But I wondered as I was thinking and praying about this, what is the image that we have of the church? Most of us will have had some teaching at school of the history of our country. We'll have learned things about the role of government and how that changed, the the role of royalty and the role of church. So we may well have learned about Henry VIII. We might have learned about uh, the conquistadors, the Reformation, the burning of heretics. In fact, we had burning of heretics here in Norwich, uh, not too far away. And of course, we may have learned something about 2,000 years of Christian heritage. And of course, we might well have come to church with different experiences here tonight. Perhaps we were forced to attend by parents. Perhaps we experienced good and bad times. And all of these may colour our expectations and understanding of what church is. Well, like last week, I'm going to start with a wider view that comes from the Bible and then narrow it down to consider that passage in Ephesians 4. Now, biologically, biologically, of course, to be a member of a family, we need to be born 
into the family. And this is acknowledged within our society by receiving the family name, or what we often call the surname. Now, of course, there are a number of exceptions to this, adoption being one. And in the Bible, we see a similar situation when we read of the family of God. God being the head of the family and his people being the offspring. And in the New Testament, the offspring were children of Israel. And God made a covenant or a promise through Moses, which is what we're seeing in the morning services in our series on Exodus. But when we turn to the New Testament, we find there's a new situation. Jesus came and through his teaching and his life, he claimed to be one with God the Father who had made that relationship. And Jesus taught that he was the way to the Father and that the Holy Spirit would come and live within the lives of the followers after he had died. We read of that in John chapter 14. And we also read in Matthew 12 how Jesus stated, all who do the will of my Father in heaven are my brothers and sisters. And so we become members of this new family through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I would like to suggest to you that we have brothers and sisters from all ages, those that have had faith in the past, those that have faith today, and those that will have faith in the future. And of course, this is a spiritual family, according to Paul's teaching. Paul teaches in Romans 8, verse 16, he says this, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So how then do we become members of this family? Well, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith, when we confess our sins and believe that Jesus' death on the cross took that punishment for them. So then there's only one condition needed for anyone to become a member of this family, and that is faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son who died for us. But what does this family, this New Testament family, actually look like? What are its characteristics? Well, the early start, the embryonic, embryonic family, are seen in the disciples of Jesus. And we see as we read the New Testament that these, these disciples had doubts, they had inconsistencies of faith, they had questions as to who is the greatest, but they also obeyed Jesus' commands. They went out and preached the good news and they brought healing to people. But at this point, they hadn't been given the Spirit of God, which was promised by Jesus. It's only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that we read of the gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon them at Pentecost. And we have a short account of the beginning of this early church in Acts 2. So let's pick out some points from Acts 2 to see what this early church was actually like. We read in Acts 2 that the people in the crowd responded to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They responded to Peter's preaching that God would accept their repentance and that they should declare this through public baptism. And what was the result of this? Well, the result is that the family was growing. It grew in numbers by about 3,000 people 
in that one day. And in Acts 2, verse 42, we see that some of the characteristics of this new family of believers, what we would call the church. So let's have a look at some of these characteristics then from this new church. Firstly, Peter writes that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching. Now, we don't know when this happened or for how long, but it was the first characteristic given by Peter, so it must have been important. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, that is, sharing in the activities of the group. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the aspect of the meal that Jesus had shared with his disciples at Passover. Again, we don't know when or how often this happened, but the word devoted seems to suggest that it was very important. And with this meal, we also read that they devoted themselves to prayer. Again, it suggests they were all together in this. They were all together listening to the preaching, the praying, and the sharing in the Last Supper. And so we see here that this young church had three spiritual exercises that the group did together. What was the result of this? What was the result of these three spiritual exercises? Well, we see here that there was an outworking of Jesus' actions. Remember that Jesus had promised that his followers would do more than him when he left them on earth. And it seems that this was the beginning to happen because we read in Acts 2, verse 43, that everyone in the area was filled with awe. There were many miracles and signs of wonders done by the apostles. There was witness to the power of God. And we read that the members of the family were glad. They had sincere hearts and they praised God each day. But we see more than this, because we see as well as these spiritual aspects of life in this family, we also see practical aspects of their lives together. In verses 44 to 46 of Acts 2, we read that they spent time together every day. Again, we're not given any more detail in this, and so we can't say how much time or what the pattern actually was. But the fact remains that these people gave considerable time to being together. And they not only spent time together, they shared their physical wealth. Because in verse 45 it says, they sold their possessions so they could give to those in need. In other words, what I think we see here, it was a caring, committed group of people. And as a result of these spiritual and physical actions, the family grew in numbers as they were regarded by the outside world with favour. Now, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time on this because it's a clear account of the early church. And we know that the apostles went out from this church in Jerusalem preaching and teaching and founding new family groups which may have replicated this pattern. We know of Paul's actions of persecuting them and then meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus when he became a disciple. And most of Paul's writings that we have in the Bible today are letters written to these young churches, either answering questions or addressing issues that had developed within these families. So what then 
as were these family of believers to be like, according to Paul. Well, please turn now into Ephesians. We're on page 1175. And we're going to start by looking at verse, uh, chapters 3 and then into chapter 4. And the first thing we say, see is that this family, this church, was to include all people. See what Paul says in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Paul writes this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, this new family includes both Jews and Gentiles. It's open to all nations of people. Now, this is in complete contrast to what had happened before when the family of God had been restricted to the people of Israel. Yes, others could become members, but they had to, the men had to undergo circumcision and become part of the race, of the Jewish race. So, firstly, then, we see that it was to include all people. Secondly, we see that it was to be strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit. The family church is to be strengthened in the power in your inner being. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And they can receive this through faith in Jesus and they can be filled with love because Jesus Christ is full of love and shows us his love through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in these few verses in Ephesians 3, we see that the family is to be filled with power and love all of which can happen because the power comes from the Holy Spirit who enables this to happen. So that's the background, the lead-in, if you like, to chapter 4, verses 1 through to 7. So let's have a look at this in a bit more detail. So Paul goes on in verse 1, look what he says, he goes to urge them. This is really important to Paul. He urges them to live lives that are worthy of your great calling. Now, as we consider the church, the family of Jesus' followers, both here locally at Trinity, but also in Norwich and in England and further out into the world, I wonder, do we ever think that way? Do we ever think that we are to live lives that should be worthy of what God has called us to? In fact, do we even consider that we've been called by God? That God has given us the faith to believe in Jesus, his son, and has called us to this gathering of this family? Well, I suggest this is a good thing to be reminded of. But how could these Ephesian Christians do this? And how can we? Well, we see the answer to this in verse 2. Paul writes, by being humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of the Spirit by having a bond of peace. But you might say, well, why should they do this? Well, Paul writes, this is because 
there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one God. See how he repeats the oneness. Because of this oneness, the family of God is to be united as one. They are to be united as one. Now you may well say to me, Nigel, isn't this pie in the sky? Is this actual reality? As I said right at the beginning, we've all faced the history of the church over 2,000 years. Some of us have had good experiences, some have had not so good experiences. All of us, I believe, will have had the experience of divisions that are found within the Christian faith. So what's Paul going on about then? What's he saying here? Well, John Stott, that famous theologian and preacher, says this of the Christian church from this passage. He says, the family of God are to have two characteristics. It is to be composed of one people, Jews and Gentiles alike, a single family, and it's to be a holy people that is distinct from the world in which it's found. They are to be set apart like the people of the Old Testament. They are to belong to God. And as a result of this, they are to display their unity and purity, which are two fundamental characteristics of a life worthy of their calling. And so in this chapter, we're seeing here Paul's teaching on the unity of the family. We find this in these verses 1 to 16, and we find the purity from verses 17 onwards. So we see here then that there are four aspects of the unity found in Ephesians 4. Firstly, we see the unity is dependent upon the members' characteristics of charity and conduct. Look at verse 2. Secondly, where does this unity come from? It comes from the unity of our God, verses 3 to 6. Thirdly, it's enriched by diversity of gifts, verses 7 to 12. And lastly, it demands the maturity of our growth in our walk with God, verses 13 to 16. Now, it's interesting when you look at Paul, because Paul doesn't start where we would expect him to start. When we talk about unity of churches, we usually start with church structure or organisation. How can we come together in organisation? No, Paul starts with the moral qualities of the members. So he addresses methods of behaviour and thinking. Firstly, he gives five characteristics of a life worthy of our calling. The charity of conduct, which includes lowliness, meekness, patience, mutual forbearance. Now we need to understand within Greek culture, humility was not considered a good personal characteristic. It's not something that the Greeks were very fond of. And Paul uses a word that means lowliness of mind, recognising the value of other people and serving others like Jesus had shown. And this characteristic is essential if we're going to have unity. Because the opposite, 
that of pride lurks behind all discord, all splitting up, all non-unity. So, to promote harmony by people, we need to give people the respect and recognize their God-given worth. And the word meekness doesn't mean weakness. No, it's the gentleness of the strong, whose strength is under control, whose personality is under control, and is a servant of others. Stott says this, Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights in the presence of God or of man. The meek man thinks as little of his personal claims as the humble man of his personal merits, a characteristic found together in the perfect balance in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus claimed to be gentle and lowly of heart. Paul writes that they also need patience for promoting unity because people can be very aggravating. Forbearing one another means to be tolerant towards others without which no group of human beings can live together in peace and harmony. And all of these characteristics are to be bound together by love. Paul had already prayed that they would love one another in chapter 3 verse 17. And we read of this in Colossians 3, verse 14, where Paul states, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So these then are the characteristics of the character which are the foundations of unity within the body of the people. And they form the basis upon which church structures can in fact be built. But secondly, we see here in this passage that unity arises in the family from the unity of God. Look at verses 3 to 6. There's a repetition here of oneness. In fact, there are seven references to oneness here. Three of them refer to the three persons of the Trinity and four references to the Christian experience in relation to the three people of the Trinity. And so Paul writes in verse 4, there is one body, that's the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and its unity is due to there being one Holy Spirit who lives in them and in us and animates us. It is the common possession of this one Holy Spirit that integrates us into one body. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that all Christians give equal emphasis to the Holy Spirit. But for us to be Christians, we have to have the Holy Spirit in us, which is given to us when we come true born-again Christians, relying upon Jesus for our salvation. But not only is there the unity from one God, there is one hope. Look in verse 4. One hope in the calling, one faith, one baptism, because there's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the object of our faith. And there is one Christian family, verse 6, because there's one God and Father. So therefore, to summarize these uh, three verses, verses 3 to 6, there is one Father who creates one family, one Lord Jesus who creates one faith, hope and baptism. And there's one spirit who creates one body and maintains its unity. 
So what Paul is arguing is that you can't multiply gods and therefore you can't multiply churches. The unity of God is inviolate and therefore so is the church. You can't split God and you can't split the church. Now, Nigel, you're going to be saying to me, we've got a bit of a problem here because we know that there are many physical divisions within the churches, within denominations, and even within a single church. So how can this be? Well, start again. He explains it like this. He says that Paul is talking here about the invisible church's unity. This is the way that the church is seen by God. Much as God sees us, without sin, if we have confessed and asked Jesus to take our sin upon the cross. We know that we are sinners, even though we have faith in Jesus' death for us. But God sees us through Jesus, and therefore he sees us holy. And Stott is saying this is the way that God sees the invisible church. Whereas we see many visible churches with disunity, which contradicts the invisible reality. So it's a paradox, which Paul recognises, because he writes in verse 3, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They are to maintain this, they are to work at it, whilst the Spirit has already created it. And so for the church members to maintain the unity must mean for them to maintain the unity visibly, to preserve it in love, in the bond of peace, the peace that binds us together, the unity that God has created and which no one can destroy. And so we are to show the world that the unity we say exists does in fact exist in glorious reality. But thirdly, This unity of the body, we see, is also enriched by diversity. The family would would be boring if it was all the same, and it would not be able to show all of God's characteristics and doing his will here on earth if we're all given the same gifts. So we read in verse 11 that there were to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. And finally, Paul writes that this all is going to be difficult and they will need to grow into maturity and the knowledge of the Son of God for the unity to be completed in the church. So in other words, what Paul is saying is it's work in progress. So it's been a difficult passage tonight. What is the lesson for us as the body of church here in Norwich? Well, as it says in verse 3, we are to make every effort. It's continuous. It's to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are to be diligent, to make full effort involving reason, physical effort and total attitude. Now, is this eagerness found within evangelical Christians today? Are we trying to help there to be unity because we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Is it found within the family here at Trinity? 
Well, I'd like to suggest and finish off by saying to you, we need, don't we, to be eager for love. We need to be eager for unity and peace. And we need to make it an item for continuous prayer. Because when this is the characteristic of the family, it will draw others to Jesus. Because that is the character of Jesus. In Jesus' lifetime, he drew people unto himself. And God's kingdom was extended. And that young church in Acts drew people to them because they were united in love of Jesus and being in the Holy Spirit as well. So let's pray for that as we finish off now. Heavenly Father, we've had a difficult passage tonight. It's difficult to understand Paul's reasoning sometimes, and we know that the reality of our Christian heritage over 2,000 years is not uh, uh, always a wonderful, united example to the world. But we pray, Father, that here, in our little way, this little church here in Norwich, we might be united in love for you, united in love for each other, and full of your Holy Spirit, that people might be drawn into this community. Amen. We continue in prayer.